Welcome to the Archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The concept of memoir versus fiction leads many authors to transform their personal experiences and life into fiction. Blanche Boyd, a native of South Carolina and a professor of literature at Connecticut College, is the author of the book entitled Terminal Velocity. This book is about a group of self-styled lesbian outlaws in the 1970s. Blanche Boyd and I discussed the relationship of memoir and fiction and how it applies to her work. This interview was originally broadcast in August of 1997. Well, I've kind of gone about this backwards. Um, right now we have a lot of interest in memoir. Um, and for me, a memoir that's been shaped in a, um, with narrative techniques. And for me, that was something I was more interested in in the late 70s um, when I wrote my collection of essays, The Redneck Way of Knowledge. And there was a kind of, after Vietnam, I think there was an explosion of, of, of fear that we were being conned about, you know, the, we found out the government was lying to us that we were the bad guys in a war. And, and uh, at the same time, we had an explosion of, of, of information in the world. And the truth seemed so hard to comprehend in any what-does-this-story-mean kind of way that the notion of writing fiction seemed irrelevant. Okay, you can make up a story. Who cares? And, and people tended... Um, you had a lot of novelists beginning to write nonfiction. Um, Norman Mailer's Armies of the Night, which was the subtitle of it, was The Novelist's History, History as the Novel. Um, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, he called his book a nonfiction novel. Um, Hunter Thompson, who participated in the stories that he did. And Joe McGinnis writing Fatal Vision. A lot of things that were... Uh, it's not that these were new things to do. It was that there was a different intensity and, and level of production among journalists um, trying to use, not, well, in journalism, I don't mean among journalists, but of writers using novel techniques, fiction techniques, to describe real events. In other words, that was a precursor to creating the memoir, the personal experience, into a fictionalized version? Maybe that's a way of saying it. For me, it was more like what what happened for me as I wrote The Redneck Way of Knowledge, and and then I've been slowly trying to work my way back toward what is the legitimacy of making up a story. And so what I did is in Redneck, uh, Redneck is autobiographical, um, directly autobiographical, as close to the facts as I can make it. And when I am distorting anything, I tell that I am. And then my novel, The Revolution of Little Girls, which came out in 1991, there's a lot of overlap. Ellen, the protagonist, and it's told in the first person in the same kind of voice that Redneck has, this, I'm going to tell you an amazing story, and it's true, and I know that because I was there. But it's a novel. It's called a novel. It is a novel. And, and, um, but it, it, it sounds like memoir. It's not. But in much of it, uh, much of the background, uh, 
of your personal experience is uh, put into Ellen's life and, and her growing up in South Carolina is much of your youth, is it not? Well, yes, but it's, the overlap is deliberate. Um, in other words, I'm not trying to have this artistic position where I say, oh, this is all made up. What really happened doesn't matter. I'm saying what really happened matters a great deal and that I have the authority to tell this story. What really happened to you matters a great deal. Or what really happened to oh, Ellen? What, what, what really happened matters a great deal. In, in other words, if I think if, if, uh, I think if a man had written this novel, it wouldn't matter very much. Just like I think if I wrote a novel about Vietnam, it wouldn't matter very much. Because, okay, so what? I can imagine my way into that experience and do a competent job or maybe even a fabulous job and dazzle people with my imagination and blah, blah, blah. Who cares? We would still say there would still be that reaction of where is the where is the authority to tell this story coming from? And what I've been doing, I'm in the middle of a trilogy, and the second one just came out, Terminal Velocity. Um, what I'm doing is is using delib- deliberate facts from my life, um, and and they're public facts because they're in the redneck way of knowledge, but. There's no, when I write an essay, my contract with the reader is the facts are going to be real and checkable, verifiable. In a novel, I'm saying some of this is factual. Of course it is. I have the authority to tell the story. That's why some of it's factual. Um, And some of it's made up. And in in the last novel, I'm going to tell it in the third person um, in a more more traditional form. Blanche, uh, before we get into the stories about uh, the novel that you're working on and, and what its present status is, could you tell us a little bit about Terminal Velocity, your current book? Terminal Velocity is about a, a group of self-styled uh, radical lesbian outlaws in the 70s who live in a commune called Red Moon Rising, and it's about what happened to them. And that commune um, more or less was uh, in Albion in Mendocino County. Oh, no, no. I mean, there was a commune in Albion, but... but uh, Well, no, that's this, why I say more or less. Um, this commune is imagined, and it is imagined. Um, there was a commune in Albion. I lived in a commune in Vermont and in a commune in Boston. And um, I, I spent the night once at, the, at a commune in Albion. But um, I'm, you know, I'm drawing on all those experiences in creating this commune. Could you perhaps read us uh, a portion of Terminal Velocity to uh, tell us uh, a flavor of, of the book? Yeah, let me read just the first couple of pages because I think it really establishes a lot. <laughs> um, all right, it begins like this. 1970, I realized that the 60s were passing me by. I had never even smoked a joint or slept with anyone besides my husband. A year later, I had left Nikki, changed my name from Ellen to Rain, and moved to a radical lesbian commune in California named Red Moon Rising, where I was playing the Ten of Hearts in an outdoor production of Alice in Wonderland when two FBI agents arrived to arrest the Red Queen. The Red Queen was my lover, and her name, I thought, was Jordan Wallace. 
It turned out that she was Nancy Jordan, and a flyer about her was hanging in post offices all over the country. In the flyer, her hair was blonde. At Red Moon Rising, in addition to the old homestead that served as the main house, there were two long pastures studded with dark green oaks and 190 acres of woods with three teepees hidden within them. Our musical feminist version of Alice in Wonderland was taking place mainly in the West Pasture. As the Ten of Hearts, my job was to shepherd the audience from the set of the Mad Hatter's Tea Party through a small ditch into the adjoining field where the final scene, the croquet match, would occur. I was also supposed to participate in the croquet game, linking hands with another hearts card to form a wicket. Jordan, as the Red Queen, would then use her flamingo mallet to hit Amethyst Woman, playing one of the balls through the wicket. I didn't much like Amethyst Woman, who'd been rolling around the yard all week practicing. She was a Marxist-Leninist dentist, transformed into a radical lesbian only a year before me. Yet she branded me a feminist novice because of my more recent name change. She'd been Amethyst Woman legally for over a year, and my ex-husband, who was still trailing me around. Amethyst claimed that I was sexually barbaric, not genuinely political, and during the early rehearsals for Alice, she had even called a house meeting to discuss the, quote, overly animalistic sounds of my relationship with Jordan. We were exclusive and disruptive, Amethyst claimed, and whatever we did sounded too much like sex with men. You're listening to us, I said, but Jordan shushed me with a wave of her hand. Which men could you possibly be talking about, Amethyst, she laughed. I must have missed something when I was straight. Jordan then mentioned the fact that she'd been Amethyst's lover for about ten seconds when the group was still trying to smash monogamy, a period in their history she insisted I was fortunate to have missed, and that Amethyst was merely jealous. Jealousy, of course, was politically incorrect. Jordan concluded with her thoughts about the radical nature of the female orgasm. The male orgasm, she said, has a biological purpose because it is directly connected to procreation. The female orgasm is by its very nature revolutionary because it is connected to nothing. Can you address that aspect of the description of uh, sex, language describing sex, well, I mean, sex is a state. It's not an act. And I think that's part of the reason that it's so difficult to write about. And, and so it has to be written about in terms of internal imagery. And it's a really easy way to make a complete fool of yourself, a, a very easy thing to write badly about it. And some of our best writers have written badly about it. Yet some people read what you write and say, what you write is what I feel and see. Well, and I feel like I write about sex um, uh, extremely well, and that, and that seems to be a general opinion. Um, and I feel like I learned how to do that from a, a few sources. Uh, one is from D.H. Lawrence, who I like to say knew a lot about sex, but almost nothing about women. And, um, and Norman Mailer, who I also suspect knows very little about women, but... He, who 
has a lot of nerve. He has the nerve to take language anywhere. But in terms of being able to describe the states, um, sexual states, I, where I really learned it was from Catherine Ann Porter, who who was able to describe death, uh, describe dying, the experience of dying. She was able to take language there. And so that really um, was a very helpful thing to study really carefully, how she had done that. What did she do? What what did she teach you by describing uh, death? Well, Porter, um, when she was 25 years old, had the flu in the 1918 influenza epidemic that I believe killed more people here than, than, than World War II. And she experienced dying. We, now this is currently fashionable, but Porter wrote about it a while ago, and, and even though to write about near-death experiences. Uh, the way that she wrote about it metaphorically was that in a story called Pale Horse, Pale Rider, a novella, um, where the main character, Miranda, gets the flu, her boyfriend, Adam, takes care of her. She's unconscious for six weeks, and when she comes to, Adam has died of the flu and the war is over. And she spends pages and pages describing the state of being unconscious. And since sex is so primitive and really a kind of altered state, it seems to me that that language, that she was able to mine all those pages of language about what it was like to be unconscious, it seemed to me if she could do that, I could certainly mine what it was like to be in a sexual state. I'm talking with Blanche McCrary Boyd from her home in Connecticut. She's the author of a new book called Terminal Velocity. You're listening to Radio Curious, and I'm Barry Vogel. Blanche, language is almost ubiquitous among our species, certainly among the adults, as, uh, as is sex, uh, which is, as you describe, a primary and, and a very important experience. Why do you think it's so difficult to put it down in literature or for people to talk about it in words? Because it's not an act. It's, it's why sex is hard to photograph. It's why it's hard to film. It's why they put Vaseline on the lenses and stuff, because you're you're in an altered state. I mean, physically, you're in an altered state, and I mean, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and and physically, literally, you're in an altered state. So language doesn't access quote ineffable experiences very well. But it does to an extent. People can talk. Uh, about the act in uh, clinical terms or uh, slang terms. Yeah, that's never helped me very much for understanding my experience. Has it helped you? <laughs> it, right, yeah, it's a, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, do you really think that stuff is like, I mean, my, it's, I mean, read one of those old sex manuals from the 50s. Jeez. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Let, let me ask you, if I may, about lesbianism. Um, I think you'd characterize it as independent sexuality in women. Well, w what I was saying is that what it represents that's larger than itself uh, is that 
that lesbianism, in a way, is a metaphor for the emergence of independence, independent sexuality for women. And what I mean by that is that, you know, before birth control, sexual feelings for women were dangerous because you could get pregnant, which meant you could get ruined. And to, be, to have access to birth control means that women discover that, in fact, sexual excitement in women... Now, I'm just talking a little bit Jordan's views here, but um, sexual excitement in women is related to procreation, but orgasm in women is not. And so it's like you, all of a sudden you've got all these women who've discovered... Um, that they have sexual feelings uh, that don't really have to do with, with having children. And in a way, and the freedom to explore that, to embrace that, um, lesbianism is a metaphor for that. It's, it's that knowledge taken to its extreme. Really? Say more. Well, it leaves men out of the equation entirely. And you're saying that that... Uh was an outgrowth primarily of um, a ready access to birth control in the 60s? I, no, they've I, always been lesbians. Yeah, and, and some of the uh, thought is that 10% or so of the population is gay or lesbian. Yeah, I have no idea whether that's true. And not only that, I think all these terms just absolutely crack as soon as you start to look at them very hard. I mean, wh I mean what's a lesbian? What's a, what's, a gay per what's a gay man? I mean... It's, um, that goes back to the issue of slang that we were talking about a little while ago. They don't. don't dis it doesn't describe it very to, well. To, to definitions that are too crude to explain or to describe our experience or how what it's like to be in the world. So you can say that you know Ellen's a lesbian um, or that these women are lesbians, but they don't even all turn out to be lesbians. Artemis Foot becomes celibate. Um, uh, Amethyst woman turns out to be heterosexual. Um, Ross turns out to be primarily um, a, a politico whose main passion has to do with politics. And, you know, they're all, what really goes on with people doesn't, doesn't fit these categories. I mean, straight people don't walk around saying, hey, I'm a heterosexual. Right. I mean, categories don't really tell us anything. So in a way, these words don't work. Even if I have to say, what's this novel about? I say it's about a group of lesbians. That's not right. It's about Ellen, Artemis, Jordan, Ross, Amethyst Woman, and Pearl. But politically, it has a very strong underlying theme of the uh, social angst and political angst of the early 70s, and particularly focusing on Vietnam. Yes. I mean, we tend to say the 60s was when the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, happened, and then we go, oh, yeah, and the women's movement. That's because the women's movement really happened in the 70s. We had some things happening in the late 60s, mostly as a, an outgrowth of the women in the anti-war movement and, and to, to a lesser extent in the civil rights movement, finding out that they were still the people making the coffee and running the ditto machines. And so all of a sudden within the movement itself, you had this, this big rebellion. But the women's movement, as, as a thing that was not simply a reaction to sexism in the anti-war movement, the women's movement as its own thing happened in the 70s. 
Being a professor of literature at Connecticut College, you're in touch with a lot of uh, young men and women in their uh, late teens and early 20s who are passing through your classes. How do you see that they relate to these issues now compared to how they were related to in the 70s? Well, for one thing, it's hard to remember the shock of of, uh, of Kate Millett's book, Sexual Politics, and the shock of of realizing the pervasiveness of sexism. And and I mean, the w women were. I mean, I when I was in high school, women had to play half court basketball. I found a 1925 track book for, for women's track. It said women shouldn't run over 880 yards because they might damage their uh, reproductive organs and that they shouldn't run during their periods at all because they would damage themselves. I, I mean, that's incredible. And if we, I mean, it's, that's one way of looking at it. Or we could say, hey, you know, women have only been legal people for 100 years. And so from that point of view, we're doing real well. Young people, I think, have lots of freedoms that they don't understand necessarily. Well, all young people think older people are cardboard cutouts on the backdrop of their lives, but they don't understand that, that people went through, um, that our generation went through what we went through or how much was on the line and how, you know, with the women's movement, how absurd it was and how passionate it was and and how much it mattered. And that's what I hope I convey in this book. In Terminal Velocity. Right. Yeah. Um, the Internet has an impact on, on all of this, and you have an impact on the Internet uh, by maintaining a web page. Yeah, I do, and I've had what... By now, um, about 4,500 visitors to my web page. I have real audio on my web page, so you can listen to the first chapter out loud, or you can read the first three chapters. Well, um, Bookstacks Unlimited, which is a bookstore on the Internet, has now put up all three of the first three chapters on real audio, which I think is pretty nifty. And if somebody wanted to find that, they could just uh, type in Blanche Boyd uh, on a search engine, and there you would. Be. I don't know if they'd get my website. I don't know if we've. we've uh... Well, that's how I found it. You did. Yep. Great. Great. Uh, but let's talk about the impact of the internet. What does that do in terms of being able to click a button and go somewhere, and click another button and be out of there? Well, for me, it's. I, I think it's had a real effect on how I'm trying to write. The, the notion of chronology, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, really doesn't hold our experience very well. It doesn't adequately convey what it's like to live in the world. For, for me, at least, you know, the world is so bizarre all the time, and, and many, many things happen that are, many things are going on at once. And so if you're trapped by chronology, um, it, you can't convey that in a story. You can tell a good story, but you can't convey something that feels true about how what it feels like to be in the world. And so, in a way, the, these, the, this trilogy is like hypertext. The, all three books are involve the same person, Ellen. Um, they're all told by Ellen, and they all take place at the same time. 
So that's the uh, revolution of little girls, terminal velocity, and? I don't know the name of the third one yet. Right now it's called Royce's Book, but I don't know if that's what it will be called. Um, but, for instance, terminal velocity is based on one paragraph in the revolution of little girls. So it's as if you clicked on that paragraph and went all the way into it. And the third book will also be like you clicked on something in in um, Revolution of Little Girls, and it took you not only to other pages, but to a whole other world that was larger than the Revolution of Little Girls. What is it that was clicked on in the Revolution book that is creating uh, perhaps Royce's book? Well, Ellen's brother um, in the Revolution of Little Girls, her brother is a novelist. Uh, he's published one novel. He disappears for a long time, and when Ellen finds him, he's become a Buddhist. He's uh, married a Vietnamese woman. He has a baby that he's named Ruby, and he's into meditation. Royce um, accidentally killed somebody when he was 17, who uh, a man who was like a father to him who was trying to cut his hair. He, there was a, a group of men at where he was working who were trying to cut his hair, and and he he had sawed off the handle of, of his mother's best broom, and and he swung this and hit this man in the temple with it and killed him. And it was self-defense, but he's had to live with having done this. So the third book is about Royce's second disappearance, his unfinished novel, and what really happened to him. And part of what will get clear is that the world, as Ellen sees it, is not the world. That Royce had an entirely different life growing up in the same family. He had a different experience of everything, and he knows things about people in the family that Ellen doesn't know. When can we look forward to reading Royce's book? Oh, probably another three or four years. It'll take me to finish it. Well, we'll look forward to talking with you on uh, Radio Curious at that time. Oh, it'll be fun. And yeah, I mean, and when I finish this trilogy, I'm not going to write any more fiction. I'm, I'll be finished. Um, if I can do this trilogy, and, and so far I've done the first two parts of it in, in ways that are completely satisfying to me, then if I can do the third one, I'm just going to hang it up. Uh, I, I like writing nonfiction, <laughs> but I won't have anything else to say that's made up, I don't think. Well, Blanche, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want to ask you the question I ask everybody at this time of the program. And that is, could you please tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? Well, I can tell you about a, an interesting book that I just passed on to someone else. Sure. Um two books, Raymond Carver's Cathedral and his book To the Waterfall. Lynch McCrary Boyd, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Sure, Barry, I really enjoyed it. Blanche Boyd is the author of Terminal Velocity. The books she recommends are both by Raymond Carver. One is Cathedral and the other is To the Waterfall. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, 
www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.